Welcome to 20th Century Geek. Welcome back to 20th Century Geek. This is your presenter, Scott Weatherly, and this time, I'm on my own. Once again, no mic work and uh, other things have come in the way. He will be back uh, soon. We're getting him back on 20th Century Towers. Um, but this week, it's just me. So we're going to be doing something a little, uh, well, harking back, I suppose. Uh, I'm going to be reviewing and discussing a book called Paper Books from Hell. And then we get to talk with the author, Grady Hendrix, about the book, um, about the content, and about his love of horror, or his interest in horror. So there we are, we're stepping out, putting our toe back in the waters of horror. So I hope you enjoy it. Let's start talking about paperbacks and horror. The late 70s and early 80s were a crazy period for horror, most possibly the high point of the 20th century. The question is, how did we get there? European horror had been growing in different ways since the end of the Second World War. Italy had grown different sub-genres, from the intense giallo mystery films starting with Mario Bava's The Girl Who Knew Too Much in 1963, to the stylish and complex horror of Dario Argento's Suspiria in 1977. All a reflection of the country's search for art and re-establishing itself following fascist rule. In Britain we had found our niche with the campy and gory gothic romps, putting a modern twist on the tales from a hundred years before. In Japan the kaiju was king, with monsters like Godzilla stomping out their feelings about the bomb. In America the genre was shifting, looking for a voice while making some great films in the process like Psycho in 1960, Rosemary's Baby in 1968, and The Exorcist in 1973. Horror literature was in a similar position. It was considered passé and was struggling to get past what had been written in the first couple of decades of the century. Yes, there were a few books that stood out. It's no surprise that the three films from the States mentioned previously were adapted from books. If something didn't change soon, they would both peter out and stop. Luckily, something did change, and change in a big way. The punk era kicked off with a scream and a bang in 1977. A generation was bored, angry, and wanted to see changes made. This is usually associated with the music of the Sex Pistols, the Ramones and the Clash. But if you take a closer look, you notice that the punk attitude seeped into so many different areas of pop culture. Horror was about to enter its own punk era. In the movies there was a shift from the gothic romps and the arty horrors to more extreme gore-filled exploitation. The slasher genre boomed in the 80s following the birth in the mid-70s with Black Christmas and Halloween. 
From thriller beginnings, we move on to the Friday the 13th series, about a revenge-driven zombie killer with a hard-on for campers. Or a Nightmare on Elm Street, about a revenge-driven child killer attacking through dreams. However, there were also non-franchise fairs, like Maniac and Prom Night in 1980, and The Burning and My Bloody Valentine in 1981. These reached a real sore point with non-horror audiences in 1984 with Silent Night, Deadly Night. This is a cheesy horror film that depicted a killer Santa killing people while declaring them all naughty. This was pulled from cinemas after a couple of weeks when several who-will-think-of-the-children type groups nationally complained about this depiction of Santa. This was by no means the most controversial film of the era, just one of the most public. In the UK, things had taken a step further. The Video Recordings Act of 1984 was legislation passed to ensure that all films distributed to the public carried a classification that, at the time, had to be agreed by the Home Office. This had been the result of actions from Mary Whitehouse, an irritating do-gooder who wanted to prove that these horror films were ruining the youth of the time and leading them to the dark side of temptation, etc, etc. Mike and I covered this in more detail in a previous episode, all about the video nasties of the 90s and 80s. If you want to know more, please go back and check it out. It's fascinating and well worth checking out. We chat about the movies from The Evil Dead, The Burning, I Spit on Your Grave and Basket Case. Not only were the filmmakers pushing the boundaries, but the establishment was pushing back. This of course made not even very good movies must-see events. If you could get your hands on them, of course. Unfortunately, by the early 90s, the peak period was fading out. A lot of what I have said so far has come from my memory. Now, that's not bragging. Okay, well, maybe a little bit. But wanting to highlight that this has come from getting to know the period, the movies and the pop culture history that goes with it. The punk era of horror movies is a great one and takes me to my next evidence and something new I have learned about. The punk era of the horror paperback that is explored and explained in the excellent Paperbacks from Hell by Grady Hendrix. I'm not going to spoil too much about the content, but I did learn so much about this period and found fascinating parallels with the punk era of horror movies. As I mentioned, earlier horror novels, up to the mid-70s, apart from a few exceptions, had not moved on a great deal since the 40s. That started to change very quickly in the mid-70s when several major publishing houses realised that they could make more money by publishing paperbacks. They were cheaper to print and distribute and the smaller size appealed to the readers. This model caught on quickly and smaller publishers soon started to copy it. They produced title after title and soon the shelves were filled with books that were looking for ways to stand out. This was when the book's covers came into their own. The artists were encouraged to be as crazy and as wild as possible, and they were. They are wonderful, and in some cases, many cases, could be works of art in their own right. I would love to see a gallery show of some of these original cover art pieces. But, not wanting the cover to outstrip the content, the story became more and more outlandish. Gory and extreme. Everything becomes fair game, and the writers take full advantage. While people will always talk about Stephen King in the 80s, they should give more time to the books about 
demon babies created by a cult of Nazi scientists, or the heavy metal band that is actually a group of vampires travelling the country. Paperbacks from Hell is the best kind of reference book. It's an introduction to the subject that has been well researched, well thought out, and most importantly, is accessible. This is not a dusty, stuffy textbook. Oh no. It starts with an anecdote about some Nazi sadomasochistic dwarves that live in the basement of a medieval castle. From there, it goes on to explain how authors like James Herbert, Sean Houston, Graham Masterson made it big in this period. This book also highlights how so many books which were published and established moments in history have been pretty much forgotten and overlooked. The best examples being Burnt Offerings, which was published in 1973, which predates the Amityville Horror by several years, but actually sets the model for the modern haunted or possessed house story. The other is The Satan Sleuth, published between late 1974 and 1975, a forgotten supernatural detective that went up against vampires, werewolves and demons, all while seducing as many women as possible. Trashy, maybe, but great fun. I found the book to be hugely insightful, and as well as giving me more information about the history, it also extended my must-read list quite extensively. It has whetted my appetite to learn more about this period in horror literature, and how it runs parallel to the movie Explosion. I can't recommend this book enough. It's fun, fascinating, and should be on the shelf of anyone with an interest in the subject. It's a superb starting point. There is so much history to discuss during this period. It isn't possible to go into detail about it all in one piece. Hendrix appreciates this and doesn't want to spoil it by trying to cram it all in. While he does mention most things, there are some areas that only get a, a brief mention. It is clear that Hendrix wants people to use this book as a way of opening the door and then to go off and find more information about the part that intrigued them most. I'm sure that so much more could be written and will be written about the small publishing houses and the characters that ran them and wrote for them. More could also be written about the influence of historical events on the topics chosen for the stories written. AIDS, the Cold War or Reaganomics. Is this the definitive guide to this period of horror history? Not quite. And that's not a bad thing. Is it a great informative read that will tickle your need to know more? Definitely. Well written and crammed with glorious cover art from the era. I love this book and will be looking out to pick up some of the paperbacks mentioned and also looking closer at the history. So, expect a much more detailed podcast in the future. There is so much more to uncover in this period. In a future podcast, I will get Mike in and we will discuss not only the era and how its, how its parallels run between uh, the paperback expansion and the movie expansion, we'll actually pick out a couple of really good examples we want to talk about. For me, I think we'll get a copy of Burnt Offerings. I want to talk more about Graham Masterton, his debut novel, uh, The Manitou, um, and uh, another one of his favourites, The Mirror. All of those we will pick out and we'll talk about in a future episode. But I don't think we can just talk about this. I think it's worth listening to what the author has to say. Recently, I had the opportunity to talk to Grady Hendrix about the book and about his thoughts and takes on horror and several other major subjects.
So okay. yeah. So so let me, let me just go from the beginning, then I'll keep it. I'll keep it short. But yeah, I wasn't a huge horror fan growing up. Like I thought horror novels, the covers were like too disreputable and kind of gross for mm. me. They really scared me uh, more than anything. Um, and so most of what I read was I would go to like used paperback stores and pick up a lot of sci-fi, a little bit of fantasy, yeah, and a ton of men's adventure books like the more violent it was and the more guns it had in it the happier i was um i love those sort of post-apocalyptic you know there's been a nuclear war in america's the wasteland and a few brave warriors or you know the soviet union's invading the united states we've got to fight back um but i read stephen king like a lot of people when i was about 12 and really fell in love with them and that sort of led me to clive barker and that just sort of that was sort of my gateway in and as i got older i realized a lot of what i liked reading and more and more of what i liked reading sort of got filed under horror so mm. that's a long answer to your short one <laughs> yeah well it's, it's interesting because it quite, it's quite an encompassing genre isn't it really so a lot gets sort of put under it so um but these books in particular, how did you come across yeah. these books? Because these are a well, real you know, sort it's of genre. Funny, like, it's funny because I still love going to like used bookstores, like paperback swap mm. shops. Really, um, the 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 more dis, the sort of more down at its heels and disreputable they are, <laughs> the better. Um, and and uh, I realized that more and more what I was writing was horror or fit into that category. And I was seeing these huge horror sections of these bookstores full of mass market paperbacks, and I had no idea what they were. Mm. So, so really, you just started picking them up? I don't know. I haven't read a lot. Yeah, I really just started picking Yeah. And, you know, um, just to sort of get an idea of what was out there. Like, it was really, really hard, you know? Um, and so that sort of led to me writing about them as sort of a... a warning to the curious you know spend your time here don't spend your time there and that sort of got me into the bigger history well that's the thing i find that's the one thing that really stuck out for me in the book is the history is fascinating like the small imprints and the publishing houses that were picking these up and you know literally like banging these out to make the cash is fascinating oh yeah it's amazing and you know i'm a real sucker for that kind of like um i love century world of new york publishing that was really and in england had the same thing with like nel um mm. but it was really sort of fast, cheap and out of control you know uh, um I, they were just sort of it, it was very localized most of the authors lived you know within the tri-state area new york new jersey connecticut the artists all lived close enough where they could either overnight or walk their paintings into the the, the publisher's offices and you know, it was this really, really fascinating kind of world, um, and I really got sucked into that. Yeah, I mean, you know, they mentioned to say the fact that like you know, Playboy got into it, and there was um, um, they had their own different things. And these, I mean, in, in in England, I know of like Pan, and they did like an anthology series um, and all these things from the seventies and eighties. But to learn about the the whole thing, like say in the states, was was, was really interesting. Um, yeah, well, it's and you know it's actually interesting you say that because I really, really want someone to write a history of NEL. I, I interviewed a lot of NEL authors doing this and like people who work there, and that place was really. Uh, I mean, a, a history of NEL would be like Mad Men only with like more brown corduroy and, <laughs> and sleazy novels. That would be amazing. That would I would love to read that. I mean, that's these. The, the thing is, you see, when you start digging into these things of the 70s and early 80s, you realise that a lot of it was sort of seat of their pants kind of 
you know, yeah. it's um, just throwing as much against the wall and seeing what's stuck, really. Yeah, like it was. It's interesting to me. Like publishing has never been good at market research. Like all the way back to the beginning. I mean, you know, it, it's like publishers resisted paperbacks, which was the one thing everyone was clamoring for. They wanted more books, cheaper and more accessible, with deeper backlists. Mm. Like, and publishers actively fought that for decades. Um, you know, publishing is never, and even today publishing barely does any market research so like you said it's throwing it against the wall and seeing what sticks it's it's people going on gut instinct a lot well it goes the way it goes the way like there's stuff produced that you know you mentioned books and and, and stuff that i'd never heard of but they're almost like forgotten milestones um yeah like burnt but, offerings you know, that's true. oh yeah no burn did you read burn offerings no no I, I'm, I'm trying to track down a copy at the moment <laughs> Yeah, burnt offerings really, you know, I had read that a long time ago. And in fact, I have three older sisters who read a lot of horror. And I would never touch it because the cover scared mm. the hell out of me. And the cover of burnt offerings with that doorknob with the face on it that's turning mm. is, I mean, to me, there is no more potent image in horror than a doorknob that's being turned and you can't see what's turning it. Like that to me is terrifying um and that image haunted me and i had read burn offerings years ago just trying to get a sense of the history of the field and it wasn't until i was doing this that book that i realized burnt offerings came before amityville heart it was the first one to really say you know there's all this economic anxiety with haunted house books um and the history of this stuff is interesting because I think I had a gut feeling about what happened when and sort of what was where, mm. but even just putting things in chronological order was really revelatory. I mean, to really look at the way horror was marketed before Rosemary's Baby in 1967, to really look at, you know, what books were published before The Exorcist and right after The Exorcist, that stuff is so telling. Uh, this is what we're saying about people jumping to it, and I've... One of the things I'll be fascinated to, like you know, you say about uh, Rosemary's Baby, um, and you know the exes being the two primaries, and you tie it to like the film industry as well, and it's the same sort of thing of like, you know, when Psycho came out in the nineteen sixty, you get that you get the imitators, uh, Peep Show, and all those kinds of things, and then when Halloween comes out, all of a sudden, like you say, you you get the birth of the slasher market, and you get it to put those things in chronological order. You can see, yeah. like you say, people trying to jump on the bandwagon, but those. But this opened yeah, up ones that I'd never thought of before. Yeah, and it's interesting to me uh, what you're saying like about you know these markers because one of the things I thought was really important with Paperbacks from Hell, and I hate to use the word important in connection to anything I've written, so one of the things that was important to me in my own tiny perspective <laughs> was this is staking out this turf, not because I'm like, done, here is the history, but because I wanted to make a little, like clear away a little room in the undergrowth where other people can come in and stand and then start forging off into the wilderness and writing better and more comprehensive histories. Um, you know, when you said that, okay, about slashers, right, Halloween, which is really, and I, I agree with you, Halloween, I would say is the, the slasher that kicked off the trend. Mm. But once, once that's an established fact of horror filmmaking, then you have all these people who start looking around and saying, well, wait a minute. 
Black Christmas is a slasher, and that came out years before. And then they start saying, well, what about Mario Bava's Bay of Blood? And what about, and they start finding these other moments that have been forgotten, but you have to have that one moment to start navigating from. You have to orient yourself from some solid ground, and that solid ground is Halloween is first. And then we can sort of challenge that and qualify that, and that's what I want paper, I want people to challenge paperbacks from hell. I want them to find books before Rosemary's Baby that were important for horror. Like, I want, but I needed people, I feel like people need a place to start. No, I agree, and that's what I, I really, because there's the statements in the book that, like you say, it's, it is, it's putting a stake in the ground that says, well, here's what we know for now, but, you know, say, like you say, make yeah. it wider, look at it. Um, I mean, because one of the things you, you mentioned about that is, uh, the two things that really stuck out for me is, I mean, I'm a big comics book fan, and I love John, John Constantine, and I love the Harry Dresden oh, sure, books. sure, sure. And then you mentioned things like the Guardians and the Satan Sleuth, and I'm like, right, here's it. Where's this the birth of the supernatural detective? Because you've got these characters, yeah. sort of like, you know, the the, the hard smoking, heart drinking macho men of the seventies, hunting yeah, down right. werewolves and vampires and. Yeah, and it's interesting because I'm I, growing up. I was I'm a big comic book guy, so I love John Constantine mm. and. Um, but you look, you know, there's a trend in supernatural detectives that goes back to the turn of the 20th century, yes. like the Carnegie Ghost Hunters. And so it's interesting to see, like, how that grew and changed and morphed. I mean, dude, I would love for someone to revive the Guardians. I don't know if it's possible just because the right situation is probably really weird. But that kind of swing in London mod kind of, like, aesthetic that, like, the Avengers or, like, the prisoner encapsulated on TV – given an occult overtone, I mean, with, you that know, that would be amazing. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, one thing I'm always jealous about is the UK has a real history of horror and especially folk horror that the U S really doesn't seem to sort of celebrate as much. Mm. And it's something I'm so deeply jealous of. I mean, I yearn for an American equivalent of like blood on Satan's claw or the wicker man or, or something, you know, it is, it's, it's, it is interesting because I say it's um, the Wicker Man is, as a standpoint is it's the it's that much like you know you say about the you know you start to track it backwards I think that's everyone's go to with that sort of um, yeah folklore thing it's the starting point but there's so there is so much that if you start in, oh my God, thing, yeah. in the hammer in the hammer archives and all these other things um, but more than that the hammer just, archives it- yeah, and you get into stuff like Penda's Fen and all these other amazing like television movies, Children of the Stones. I mean, really incredible stuff. It is, and, and that's so we are very lucky. That and it sort of it tracks through. Um, I mean, one of the the authors you've mentioned a lot in this, um, I'm a massive fan, is James Herbert. Yeah, um, sure. And I always think of his work as you look at his early books, and they are very much of this sort of like churn out, you know, rats. And Lair yeah. and, and the Jonah and all the, the early ones are they're so much fun and they're so daft in many respects. The Spear or Creed, those ones. Yeah. But then when you get on well, later on. So... Oh, well, yeah. See, I haven't read a lot of his later stuff. What's it like? He, I mean, there's a real change in the sort of like mid 90s to the early 2000s, and you get things like um, Haunted. Uh, is, a, is, a, is one of my favourite is a very much of a haunted house novel you could tie it into like Burnt Offerings or Amityville it's, it's got a, it's a ghost story it's you know um, right. the haunting of Hill House kind of thing but then you get like the ghosts of Sleeth and Ash as, as that trilogy and you can see his development and you get this sort of fairy tale element coming in through like uh, with uh, Once and Others and you know those sorts of things um, they're very good I, yeah, re- I, I really recommend the I really need to check books. out his later yeah, I need to really check out his later stuff because I know him, you know, it's sort of the punk rock pedal to the metal, you know, mm. 
guy from early in his career. Um, and I really need to check out his later stuff because that's, that's fascinating that he sort of took this other direction. Oh, yeah, I mean, totally. The ones I'd recommend definitely like Magic Cottage, uh, Others and uh, Once, a fantastic sort of insight into a, a growing... Yeah. Uh, especially if you want that folky sort of like mystic, British mysticism, which he really starts to tap into. Well, you know, another person who I feel like sort of took that and, and brought it like into the into the present day is Ramsey Campbell. I mean, you know, you just relocate a lot of his early stories from a city to the countryside, mm. and they're practically folk horror. This idea that the the horror comes out of the landscape; it's formed from the environment. It's it, it and the environment and the landscape drives people to these desperate acts. Like, I mean, I really love that thing from him, but it really is urban folk horror to me. Yeah, and I think it's uh, Ramsey Campbell's another one. I have to admit, right, right here and now, this book when I bought, when I got given, it, I was given this book as a present, so it shouldn't have cost uh. me anything. However, <laughs> having read the book, it's becoming quite costly because <laughs> uh, I am invested in Ramsey Campbell. The other one I, I bought just the other day is a whole load of Graham Masterton. Oh my God, I gotta say, like honestly, if I had like a like three or four mystery boxes in front of me mm. and it's like i could buy i could get one of them and each one contained a different author just a random assortment of their books mm. and i think bang for buck i take the graham masterton he he may be crazy and sometimes he may turn out a book that's a little bit like yeah not really to my taste but man he always delivers something <laughs> Well, this, well, I bought off um, off uh, Gumtree just a collection of his books. That, right, it was it was that mystery box. It was literally just Graham yeah. Masterton, and I've got so I've got uh, the Manitou uh, Mirror Night um, Watchers, uh, the Pariah. Um, oh, I, really I mean, Man- Manitou Manitou is where I'd start, man. That book is. It starts out pretty normally, and by the time you get to the end, it's a little like the movie. It starts relatively normally. By the time you get to the end, you're like, "How did we wind up here? Yeah. Like, I can't <laughs> see where we started anymore." <laughs> <laughs> and I do, but I love that in books when you sort of you get to the end, and I'm a bit like, "Oh, I, I didn't realize it was going to go here." Um, yeah, because <laughs> I, I, I find that with this, I find that with the with Clive Barker books as well, sort of. You start in something, there's a premise, and then that premise just goes off, and you're like, oh, okay, that's just going to happen, yeah. I'll accept that. And, and, you know, I don't understand Clive Barker. Like, he's one of those authors, the Books of Blood, when they came out, really blew my mind. And mm. I read those short stories again and again. I read Damnation Dame and Weird World, and I read one or two of his later books, like Great and Secret Show, but he was so unique and so amazing, and his profile is so absent these days and you know i look at something like weave world and i look at all these streaming services like netflix and amazon and all these places that are investing in these series and i'm like where's my weave world series where's my clive barker presents where's my books of blood like what is going on i i totally agree in fact it was was funny that i was having this exact conversation with a friend of mine uh, earlier in the week which I'm um, I'm listening to uh, the audio of a Magica at the moment, and I'm describing that, and I've read Weave World, I've read the Great you know the Great Imag- uh, What's yeah. the Show, and all those books, and um, we were just saying like, well, what, why aren't any of these? It's possible now if you can do like Legion and Westworld and all these others. Like, yeah. Why why don't we have um, you know the the books of the art being brought to to life on screen? And they really should be. 
I know. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I was just out in L.A. sort of talking to some people and everything he has is optioned, like everything, every mm. short story, every book. They're all optioned by people and no one's doing anything with them. It blows my mind. I think there's an element, though, of, of he's a bit, he's a bit I consider it like the Alan Moore effect of there's been some attempts, everything from, like you know, Rawhead Rex to Midnight oh, Meat sure. Train to Box of Blood. The, the movie um, and when you look at what has been made there's some standouts Hellraiser I, I love um, uh, Nightbreed yeah, yeah. and a few others but the quality has always been almost like direct to DVD kind of level yeah no and you're right but I just I it still mystifies me I mean you know every I mean look Bad movie adaptations haven't killed Stephen King's like Very <laughs> Russian true. Hollywood. Very and, true. and I would be I would be hard pressed to name five Stephen King adaptations I think are truly fantastic. Um but like I, I so I just don't get it. I don't get it. It's weird. I think it's gonna it's happen. Little... I do think it's gonna happen. I think someone's yeah. gonna and like you say it'll be Amazon or Netflix or someone like that is gonna really push the boat out and try something um, well, you know, weird. It's like it's like you were just saying though. Like Ramsey Campbell, he's only had two books turned into movies, and both were in Spain. Like it's it's. Mm. I find that really weird. It's. I think horror is really. I mean, you know, you, as you say, you highlight in the book. Um, it tailed off in the nineties, and it you know for, for yeah. the paperbacks, and that was very true of the films. Like you know, you you watch the sort of early nineties horror is dreadful for the most part. Um, yeah. And then it became self-referential and aware with Scream. And it hasn't, if I'm perfect, it's only just recovering now, you know. Yeah, oh, uh, I agree. Well, and it's also, you know, there's a thing with horror that really frustrates me. And it's the same thing I see happening with romance movies. Um, like romance movies and, and horror films, but also horror books, I would say. Like in romance, you have like all these terrible romantic comedies that have really like, turn that genre into a bombed out wasteland mm. and yet there are still great romances getting made but if they're good you don't call them a romance you call them a drama or you call them a comedy or you call them a horror movie and i find that same thing with horror which is horror again and again gets so limited by it has to be horrifying. And I, and I get that to some extent, but but what about horror that's funny? Okay, there's some comfort with that. What about horror that's romantic? A little less comfort with that. But horror is the genre that is the only genre that deals with what I think is the central fact of our lives that shapes us, which is we're all going to die. And mm -hmm. horror is the only place where you can really sit with that. And where's the horror? Like, I, I find that sometimes like people really ignore the ways horror can be beautiful or horror can be romantic or moving or emotional. Um, and, and that always bums me out. I feel like there's so much there and it's just, you have to have the courage to go after it. And look, I've tried to go after some of that stuff. Sometimes I fail sometimes and look stupid. Sometimes I succeed and look like a genius, but you got to try. And I really feel like there's so much room for so much variety in horror. Oh, I agree. I, 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 you know, I share your frustration on that front of, um, you know, you get tarred with that brush in horror of like, okay, it's gonna be blood and guts and silliness, you know. Yeah. Um, but then in the last, you know, I mean, Get Out has obviously sort of pushed the boundaries a little bit in right. one direction and opened the door. 
but there's been films like The Witch. Um, the, yes. uh, I don't know if you saw the, the, the there was the Love Witch as well, which was quite interesting. Um, yeah, and, and you've got Don't Breathe and these other things that sort of you know. Have, yeah, have, and you know it's interesting. Like I, I mean, I look at a movie like um, Did you see My Friend Dahmer? No, I haven't seen it yet. You know, it's a movie that I liked and hated in equal measures because it's a really sweet, very well done, very well acted, very well made. Um, movie about this kid really trying to fit in and and it's painful and embarrassing and you relate to it and and it's awkward and it's kind of touching and it's someone trying to like fight their worst instincts and they just don't have the tools to fight it and it's so great and then at the end you know it ends with Dahmer you know becoming an adult and committing Mm -hmm. his first murder and that's what I hate because I'm like this kid struggles so hard and you're so with them and then he just can't resist this this horrible side of himself and oh crap you know here we go down a, a long hallway of pain and horror and i'm like and so i hate that i wind up rooting for this guy and be, being moved by this kid and then he loses and it's all for it's all worthless you know and that's it but sometimes that's that's you know you say about horror and there's certain things in horror that you can really you know there's obviously there's the facing up to death but um, I, I, I like when horror does that sort of thing. It's almost like that inevitability of, you know, of disaster or isolation or death. Yeah. So it's like, you know, you they try and struggle so hard against it, but it's just going to take them. Um, yeah. And it's like, you know, when I was growing up, I mean, I was born in 72, so I'm like ancient. I'm practically a mummy. Um, but like growing up, I was terrified of nuclear war. And like it didn't help that my dad really enjoyed fear mongering about it. And, um, I really, really thought, and you know, in their way, I mean, I think a lot of people felt like when you're a kid, there was like a 50-50 chance you were going to make it to 18. Like, we <laughs> might all die. And looking back, and I really love disaster scenarios, things like Threads mm. and The Day After and all the books about, like, nuclear war and post-apocalyptic stuff, partly because they gave me hope. Hey, I could be a mutant survivor in a motorcycle gang with a crossbow. <laughs> or, you know... Partly it was like, it was kind of like um, picking at a scab to like look at something like threads that's so bleak and like really indulging in the worst case scenario. And now you look back at that horror and it seems so irrational and you realize that the hero, and, and it gives me such hope because there were these heroes who literally did nothing. What they did was they kept their fingers off the button that there were soviet military officers who had every reason to launch at certain false alarms and they chose not to mm. that there were american soldiers who had every reason to launch during a computer malfunctions or whatever and they chose not to and it's it's only in retrospect that that appears heroic but it gives me you know a lot of hope <laughs> to be honest no and that's the thing i think that that's really true i mean that's when you you know we talk about history in this era um, as, as to why I think horror was so prevalent in, especially this kind of horror. You know, in your book, you talk about the mad books, the sort of almost sort of like the the splatterpunk and the you know the animal oh, yeah, horror, yeah, yeah. all those all those books. And I think the reason that th- this became so popular was because it was such a, an insane distraction from the real horror of yeah yeah I could wake up to a mushroom cloud tomorrow or yeah. you know whatever. <laughs> And it's even the same as the Satanic Panic. The Satanic Panic 
is a complete distraction. Like there is no justification or or um, you know. I mean, you mentioned like the book Michelle remembers, which I haven't read, but I've read clip notes and stuff of it, and it's so stupid that anyone oh, yeah. that believes it, you're like, right, you are you're deluding yourself for a reason. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. Well, two things, like, just sort of what you're saying is, one is, you know, it's, um, you look at this stuff, and, and on the one hand, yeah, I agree, the satanic panic, I mean, what a load of, you know, <laughs> crap that was. On the other hand, it's really fascinating that there were people out there who had been abused or um, or, or something, and they felt like they, 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 felt like they were a victim of these larger forces and they felt voiceless and powerless mm. and and their genuine pain got channeled into this bizarre outlet i mean this really bizarre outlet and i sometimes wonder if you know if someone who's a victim of sexual abuse if it's hard and i'm not saying everyone i'm saying in some cases during yeah. satanic panic if it was so hard for them to process the fact that a family member or someone they trusted had done this to them, that it was almost easier in a way to say these were Satanists or there was a bigger conspiracy. Just to process the, the horribleness of to, someone you trust taking such violation and advantage of you. That's it, and to give it a motivation and a, and a justification as to why this happened. And I mean, one of the things you actually mentioned in the book, actually, to relate to that is regarding to the Amityville horror, which I covered a lot last November. Is uh, is the documentary from 2013, oh, yeah. My, My Amityville Horror? Oh my God! Which really I mean, does that thing, How what do you think of that movie, man? Uh, it was I was very. It's 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 a, it's almost um, tragic to watch someone who's yeah. clearly broken, still trying to process whatever the hell happened, and I don't yeah. think it gives definitive answers, and I don't believe it was. No, I don't either. Supernatural, but something clearly happened and it's like tip of the iceberg like there was some real da uh, damage done um and to see yeah, that he's still and, working through it was really upsetting yeah and actually i think you put your finger on it like i mean he looks like a daniel lutz looks like a really difficult guy to be stuck in an elevator with yes. and you're right it's he's still processing this like he's still trying to put the pieces back together and one of the things that makes me so furious about the Amityville horror is everyone was so eager to say demon demon and write mm. a book and cash in that all these supposed responsible adults passed through that house and no one looked at what was happening to these kids to this family like you know whether you believe what happened or not and I tend not to like who was watching out for these kids oh no one no seriously when I did my research on yeah, them, I know. they never get mentioned they are just as they are a footnote in this whole history, and it's, yeah. it's disgusting how they were sidestepped. Yeah, I mean, it's so mind-blowing. And actually, I want to say, you know, you you were talking about how these things were a distraction from, like, real life, what was going on, these fictional horrors. It's really interesting. I don't know if you ever read, um, there's this guy, Justin Marriott, in the UK, who puts out this uh, thing called The Paperback Fanatic. Um, it's sort of an irregular published magazine. He does it through Amazon now. Um, like, it's, like, print-on-demand now, and it's great. But... I had read all these sort of like animal attack books, which is really my favorite genre of all <laughs> these. And 
I was looking at, there's all these ones about rabies and so many about, you know, some nice British couple will go to France and they'll get a dog or a cat and they bring it back to the UK and break the quarantine and it's got rabies. And then England just dies screaming at the hands of these evil, rabid animals. And I didn't realize until I read this article that Justin had written in the magazine that all those books happened in the brief couple of years when the UK entered the European common market. And I'm like, well, of course, that makes total sense. You know, people were terrified. They're going to share germs with France. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And this is, I and mean, that's what I love about, I mean, that's, you know, this whole, my podcast, 20th Century Geek, is that, that's totally what the, is what started me on this path was, looking back at I mean I started by looking at superheroes and I was like well where do they come from and why yeah and then looking at then and then you know like you said going back further and then, well Superman wasn't you know everyone says Superman's the start but he's not the start because you've got Doc Savage and the shadow and the spider and right and then you go back and you go, well then you've got Tarzan and da, 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 and you keep working it backwards um and you're yeah. finding that channel and it's that thing of keep you keep looking at actual history and you go well why did that character jump up then oh it was the depression Okay, so why did then you know why did Superman then become big? Oh, because he came out just before World War Two. Yeah. You're right. So you can really tack things onto real life. So to know that is actually really fascinating. That yeah, in this country we were terrified of the Europeans. Um, yes. And, and if you're perfectly honest, we probably still are. <laughs> <laughs> Who isn't? Yeah. But you know, it's interesting. One thing I really realized, like putting paperbacks from hell together, is like everything happens for a reason. Nothing mm. happens in a vacuum. And there may be a lot of different reasons, but nothing just spontaneously happens. I mean, one of the moments in this book that was so amazing to me and like gave me such a real thrill is I was really wanted to talk about gothic romances, you know, those books in the 60s and late 50s with the woman running from the house on the mm. cover and the castle behind her with one lit window. And, you know, and it's always this, this, this sort of fraught, horror-tinged love story and I found actually and I mean I didn't find it. I found like a, an article someone had written in a book that's out of print now but they reprinted the letter from the publisher who wrote who published the first gothic romance and they in the letter say this is what these stories will be this is what the covers will look like. This, and it is everything right there. And so it's this thing, like you look at these hundreds and hundreds of almost identical covers and you think, wow, you know, that must just be this pop culture moment. Everyone was like, no, someone sat down and thought about it and wrote a letter and that happened. Like, I love finding those, like you're saying with the superheroes, finding those starting points is mm. so exciting. That's fascinating. That's it. That's to say that, that that's a birth point. Like That's a, a pop culture milestone yeah. there. Again, there's been forgotten. Like it, it, you know, that's not in the ethos. It should be, really. Yeah. Um, um, I, I don't mean to be rude. No, no, I, I was just saying. have to run in a minute. I'm really, really sorry. Uh, I mean, we should do this again at some point. We should. I'll, I'll definitely have you going again. It's been fantastic. And I really appreciate the time. Um, no, if you've got one last thing you want to do as a wrap-up, let's, let's do, do it. But... Um, I said, well, as a wrap up, just to be fair, because you've given your time, is there anything you want to promote or uh, give a cheap pop to um, whilst you've got the time? No, the, the only 
only thing I'd say is uh, my website's just gradyhendrix.com, and I'm actually I'm still doing paperbacks from hell. If you sign up for my newsletter, every week I read a new paperback, and sometimes they're not quite a horror novel. It might be like a men's adventure thing or a post-apocalyptic thing or something, but every week I'm writing a big essay, a kind of review thing on a new horror novel. So if you go to gradyhendrix.com and go down to the Contact Us page, it'll show you how to sign up, and you can get more of my insane jabbering in your uh, email every week. I will be doing that, I guarantee. I guarantee. Thank you. Um, well, let's do this again. Stay in we, touch, man. I will do. There you have it, the great Grady Hendrix. Really enjoyed talking to him and um, love his energy, love his understanding of the subject and everything else. And the fact that he's so open to other people exploring this. And it's not so precious that this was his this is his idea or this is his book. It is an open door. Um, and one I, I'm hoping that uh, 20th Century Geek can push on and even Scott Weatherly, uh, you know, myself, might push on at some point and try and do something with. Okay, so... Uh, this was a bit of a, a taster for, for the more horror things we'll do later in the year. Uh, and hopefully, as I say, we'll get Grady back at some point and do some more stuff. But next month, next month is a special month. Uh, April 2018 is going to be celebrating 80 years of the Man of Steel. Action Comics 1000 hits bookshelves. It's going to be a big, big month for Superman. So, we are going to be celebrating that with several podcasts talking all about uh, the big blue boy scout himself in every possible media format from comics and books to uh, television and film so i hope you join us to talk about that and uh, if you want to let know more uh, about 20th century geek please contact me it's 20th century geek at gmail.com find me on twitter at 20th century geek and also the same under 20th century geek on twitter on facebook on instagram on Tumblr, on many other platforms. Uh, we're on iTunes and other uh, podcasting platforms, so wherever you can find us, please leave a review, uh, subscribe. All of it's wonderful. And uh, the icing on the cake, the gravy on my roast potatoes, if you get a chance, please, please find us on Patreon and uh, donate whatever you can. Uh, there are rewards. Go check out the rewards. Um, and uh, every penny counts. Help us say, it helps keep the lights on. So, so until next time. See you soon.